Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Let me just pray before I get started. Dear God, this morning I want to say something true and good and beautiful. So surpass, transcend my inadequacies and speak this morning. Amen. John the Baptist's head. Christians don't spend enough time thinking about John the Baptist. We typically just think he's this weird guy who's out in the desert wearing camel's cloth and eating locusts, who prophesied Jesus' coming and then baptizes him when he shows up. But John's, he's just a kind of flat character, a functionary who serves a brief sacramental purpose and then moves off stage. But there's some other weird stuff about him that you may not have heard about before, and if you have, you probably haven't given it much thought. So a lot of folks thought that he was the Messiah. I don't know if you've caught that in your scripture reading. He kept having to disabuse people of this notion and remind them that one greater than I is coming. And growing up reading this text, I sort of assumed that the people were just being stupid Like, obviously, he's not the Messiah, right? I knew that. Why would you think that? And John has to be gentle with his feeble-minded followers and point to the one who is coming, who is obviously Jesus, right? I understood that. Why couldn't they? But I think that's a needlessly uncharitable reading. More likely, people had very good reasons for thinking that he might be the one. He was at least significant enough for Jesus to get baptized by him. Right? And much later, after Jesus ascends, the disciples encounter people who believe that their salvation has come through John's baptism. The disciples say that they must receive Christ's baptism, but again, John was significant enough that people believed his baptism was sufficient for salvation. And finally, not only is he a profoundly important religious leader, he's also a political player as well as he ends up being incarcerated for his subversive anti-Herodian sentiments, eventually being beheaded for purely political reasons. You may be starting to see a pattern here where so many of those involved in the early Jesus movement were pursued by the state and killed if they could be. But here's what really strikes me. John the Baptist's sacrifice, his commitment even unto death, and the way in which he never failed to point beyond himself. He had every opportunity to develop a following that benefited him materially. Instead of camel hair and locust, he could have done quite well for himself. Instead of being a fairly peripheral character on the scene, he could have made himself the main guy. Instead of prison time and execution by beheading, He could have kept his truth quiet in the face of power. But he continually chooses faithfulness to the call 
an authentic participation in the story and the work of God that was unfolding in history. A person who could use his position for so much worldly gain points beyond himself, even when it costs him his life. John the Baptist is instructive in so many ways. But the thing that I've been sitting with is the way in which he avoids confusing the work of God with a self-making project. What he has been called to is not an opportunity to solidify his place in the world, to secure his own existence, to establish a legacy that is recognizable by worldly adjudicators of meaning and value. He points beyond himself. He labors not as a means of padding a profile or extending personal influence, but so that people might know the hope that is arriving in Christ. And it's not just that he refuses to seize the opportunity to exploit his platform for personal gain. It's that he chooses death. I don't know how many of us here have been or are facing death because of your commitments to the gospel. But that's a pattern of our forebears. It's even prescribed by Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me is an invitation into death to occupy criminal spaces, to be an enemy of the state and of all oppressive powers. Jesus came to inaugurate a new world, and somehow we imagine that we can build towards this new world without risking death. John the Baptist was not so naive, nor was Paul or Peter or Jesus all executed. I'll be preaching about what it means to have a fugitive faith in a few weeks. But the point I want to make here is that the work requires radicalism. Jesus says to hate your father and mother, to sell all that you have and give it to the poor, to come and die. But unlike John the Baptist and other faithful followers, we think he said, come hang out with your friends, give your scraps and leftovers, and go about your life participating in the world under the assumption that it will never change. That's not in my Bible, but I've heard it too. It's a lot easier to hear than come and die. John the Baptist didn't live his life attempting to secure his life to protect a present or a future, but to testify to the gospel with the fullness of his life and even his death. He points beyond himself, and his head is cut from his body as the world descends upon another truth-teller. So now, is it the case that if you haven't died for the poor, you're a bad or even failed Christian? I don't think so. There's a mystical particularity to our individual calls. But I do believe that an openness to sacrifice is a marker of faithfulness to the cause. The question we have to ask is, what does liberation demand? To what work have you been called? That's not for me or anyone else to tell you, but for you to work out in fear and trembling. But here are some guidelines for your thinking. We thought about this verse in our meeting on Thursday, thinking about stewardship, 1 Peter 4.10. 
Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We are called to use whatever gifts we have been given, whatever privileges or talents or resources we have at our disposal to serve others. This is to be a good steward of God's grace. But how much do we give? All of our time? Like Jesus asks of the disciples? All of our money? Like Jesus asks of the rich young ruler and the apostles do in Acts 2? Like the woman who gave her last might did? I don't know. Maybe. But there is a fairly limited prerogative to be that radical. For some, it seems, but not for all. The universal baseline, though, from the earliest parts of Scripture, is 10%. That's the bottom. That's the minimum. (laughs) Tithing, right? We're all familiar with that concept. 10% of what you have, you give back to God. With gifts and offerings besides, actually, on top of that, as expressions of of your reverence and love for God. 10% of your time and talent, 10% of your treasure. What would that look like for you? It's not your head. It's not being crucified or crucified upside down or exiled to a deserted island, all things that happened to the early apostles. But it might still be profoundly difficult. But to what level of sacrifice are you called? There are so many competing claims on our time, talents, and treasures. So many grubby little hands clutching for what we have worked so hard for. Empty vessels that vacuum up our time and money and give nothing in return. Dead promises that are never delivered on. Another vapid, cheery commercial. Another empty political vision. But is this place empty? Is the Spirit of God absent from here? Are miracles not flowing like a torrent into the spiritual desert of our wider culture? There's so many little instances of this. But last week, I just want to say, this woman came in after, that, after the service. She said that she had been walking down the street. She's visiting from D.C., not a particularly churchy person. She heard the music and came in and heard the sermon. And she's a Palestinian woman who lived in the West Bank, who has done organizing work towards Palestinian liberation, who who lives in a culture that is so anti-Palestinian that she has now has difficulty even speaking about it because she's been so antagonized every time she brings it up. She even wanted to speak during prayer time and offer her thanks for it, but she said her throat was closed up after so much trauma. And yet here we were, representing that witness, the witness of the oppressed against the oppressor. And she just happened to come in. Just a small, little miracle, so so many of which we experience week in and week out. It feels weird to bring up just one example of spirit-infused encounter world. A thousand others go untold, even in just this last week. Stories of people facing the most brutal and painful and terrifying things that life can bring, but being carried through by this community. I'll just take my own story as a small addition. Some of y'all know a bit about it. 
I grew up in a community that pushed me to the outer spaces, into insanity and suicidality, that alienated me from the world in the core of my being, that disintegrated me from the world, that made me a ghost walking among the living, completely alone. I would look up into the hills of the Oregon wilderness, mists hanging low in the dead of night, and imagine myself walking up into them and dissipating into the ether. There was so little existence, so little of me left, and no place for me in the world. But I wonder, LJ, if you could throw that picture up real quick. So this, this was, I posted this to my Instagram story four years ago to this Sunday. It was December 8th, 2018. And of course, you know, excuse the initialism at the bottom, but, but it's just so radically different for me. Um, such a complete mirror, like I, I, can't, I can't describe it. But I never felt home like I felt the morning I stepped into First Church and the way this community has carried me has held me, has ministered to me, and built up a small, terrified kid into someone who can stand on their own two feet with a place in the world because of the love of a people. I'm not going to begin to list all the things that people have done for me here or the things that I've seen done for other people. Massive, sacrificial things sometimes, but what's more powerful to me is the pattern. A pattern of building one another up, of being a warmth in a cold and unfeeling world, of making meaning flower into purpose where there is none. This is a different way of being. This is an alternative to the atomizing competition and clash of the world out there. It's a way of being for one another. We all come from so many places carrying different forms of pain. And where else are we healed? Where else can we bring our pain, our alienation, our anxiety, our fear, and be held? Where else are we allowed to be fully human? There's more work to do. We can get even better at what we do and more fully approximate to the depth of our call. But what else would you invest in? Where else would you put your time and resources? What does a project like this deserve from you? What kind of care are you obligated to provide for it? Out of all the trivialities and vanities and dead ends that the world offers, this is substance. This is real. This is life happening together and straining toward justice and the fullness of love. So you're going to be asked to pledge this morning. And I ask that you pledge something that reflects the seriousness of this collective call. If you've already pledged, reevaluate its intensity. I ask that you think about the time that you give to this place to reconfigure that commitment according to your convictions. I ask that you venture deeper into the mystery of your mystical call. 
and bring your purpose back to the whole so that we might be better and stronger and more capable of serving the world and healing its oozing, festering, broken places like no one else does. The world needs this, and I can't imagine a higher call. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.